Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, as we continue through this series, this is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, or about three-fourths or a little more of the way through this psalm. And the whole thing is about God's word, God's law. If you had just kind of asked the question, what do you think God would have the longest chapter in the Bible be all about? It's not what I would have guessed. And yet, God values his word, his law, very highly. And so there's a lot for us to learn here. Why should we look at God's law? Well, the psalmist is modeling for us why we should be looking, for, looking at it. All the things that he says about it, how it's his comfort, it's his delight, it's his joy, it's his guidance, it's his standard, all of those things, we're supposed to walk in his footsteps. We're supposed to model our thinking and our hearts after his. He's giving us an example of how we should think about God's law. Today, we're going to look at verses 133 to 136. 133 to 136. And as we go through these verses, again, this series is a little bit different in that a lot of the application is kind of woven in through the first part of the message because that's where we're talking about these specific verses. So just kind of pay attention for that as we go. And these verses today... Part of the focus here is going to be on the relationship of God's law to the nations. And we're going to see that clearly once we get to the principle and the case law in the second half of the message today. Psalm 119, verses 133 to 136. Follow along as I read for us. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Well, verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. We start off by just noting that phrase, keep steady. Steady there is really the word ordered or directed. So this is kind of saying, to, in order to have orderliness, keep my steps ordered, it needs to be according to a particular pattern. If there's an order to it, there's a pattern or a standard that it needs to follow. And the standard here is God's word. Specifically here, it says your promise, but if you just translated the word, it's just God's word. So order my steps according to your word or direct my steps according to your word. Here's what Calvin has to say about this verse. He says, it is here explicitly set down that we must be ordered by the word of God for all our whole life is a great disorder and we wander and stray like brute beasts except the word of God be our only rule and plain square. He's using kind of construction terms there to say, if you want things to be orderly and all lined up right in your life, you have to do that according to the standard that God has given, and that standard is his word. And this is all his steps kept in order, all of life. So think of it this way. Godliness, living according to God's law, is not like a special suit or a dress that you put on for a holiday or for a wedding or something like that. This is everyday clothes. All my steps, right? Keep my steps ordered according to your word. 
This is all of life. And note the second part of the verse, let no iniquity get dominion over me. The psalmist wants to resist, to push back against sin. He doesn't want to let sin get control in his life. It's interesting, Thomas Manton had a helpful comment on this. He said, many that seek mercy to deliver them from the guilt of sin do not desire grace to deliver them from the power of it. How often is that true in your life? You want God's mercy and forgiveness in regard to the penalty of sin. But do you really want delivered from the power of sin? Or do you cling to that sin that's just something that's part of who I am? Instead, we should be battling against sin, like the psalmist says. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. I want to win the fight against sin, he's saying. Sin is a tyrant in your life, so fight against it. Don't quietly submit to it. When we sin, we're, we're renouncing or rebelling against the government of Christ in our life. But Christ has a right to our obedience. He purchased us with his blood. Paul, when he talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus and then applies it in our lives, here's what he says. This is Romans chapter 6. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, just like Jesus died, and alive to God in Christ Jesus, like Jesus rose. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You've been raised with Christ, he's saying, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You're no longer under the penalty of law, you don't have to give in to it. God has freed you from the penalty of the law. Live as those who have been redeemed. Let's go on to the next verse, Psalm 130, 119, verse 134. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. A lot of times there will be forces in this world that push you to do things you shouldn't do. It could be government that's doing that. It could be an employer that's doing that. It could be friends that are doing that. But there's some sort of oppression, some sort of threatening, some sort of pressure that you feel to sin. Here, the psalmist says, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. So you probably get the idea here that this is someone who actually has some sort of coercive power over the psalmist. Maybe it's a government type um, power. Spurgeon gives an illustration here. He says, a wife that has an abusive husband may give in to his oppression and do things that she shouldn't, things that go against conscience, just in order to, to, to not run into that trouble. In the same way, Spurgeon says, quote, societies and even whole nations have been brought into the same difficulty. When the people give in to an oppressive ruler rather than obeying God, 
then you run into all kinds of trouble. And so the psalmist says, redeem me from man's oppression in order that I may keep your precepts. He's, he feels like the, the, the oppression is preventing him from being able to obey, but he wants to. And so when God delivers us from an oppressive rule, from a tyrant, how should we respond? You should respond by serving him. You respond in gratitude. Now there's freedom to obey. That's what the psalmist is praying for. And every time that God shows his mercy in a way like this, every time God does something to deliver his people, there's a corresponding duty that goes with that. When God redeems his people, they should now obey him. They should follow him. When God delivers you from an oppressive situation, you should respond in obedience. Here's an example. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 32. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud. So God delivered him like he asked, but then Hezekiah didn't respond rightly to the mercy that God had shown him. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. When God shows mercy, when he delivers, there's a duty that then follows that. We should respond rightly to the mercy that God has shown us. And so the psalmist in Psalm 119, 134 says, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. That's what he wants to do. Verse 135 then, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. God's face shining on us is a picture of his soul-satisfying favor being shown to us. Proverbs 16, 15 says, In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. When you have a godly ruler who is, is seeking the good of his people, his face is shining on them. That brings life. It brings joy. The picture here in our verse in Psalm 119 is of the shining of the sun. What does the sun give us? Well, it gives us light and it gives us heat. These are essential things that we need. They, those things cause life. They cause growth. Those are great blessings and benefits. That's what God's face shining is illustrating for us. The, the, the actual like visible illustration of this that God gave to his people was in the holy place, in the tabernacle. So if you were one of the priests and you went into the holy place, you would find on your right hand side was the, um, the candlestick, the, 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 the menorah that, with the seven lights on it. And on the opposite side, across from it, was the table with the bread. Now the, the candle, the light, is a picture of God's presence. You know, everywhere God's presence shows up, it's like fire and light and things like that. Well, that's what that's what that's what that's what's illustrating. It's it's seven candles because seven's the number of perfection. So this is God's presence. 
On the opposite side, the bread, there's 12 loaves of bread because it's 12 tribes of Israel. It's representing the people. And so the people are there in the light of God's presence. That's what's being pictured. And that's the idea of what the psalmist is saying here. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So those who live in the light of God's presence, the favor of his shining face, are those who learn his statutes and walk according to his law. When Paul writes, and he's speaking of living as a new creature in Christ, in Galatians chapter 6, he says, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Walking according to that rule, that law, brings blessing in your life. If we would walk this way, we have to go to God for the direction on how to do it. So, for example, Psalm 86, verse 11, teach me your way, O God, or O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. You want to know how to walk? You have to be taught by God. And that teaching is found in his word. And then our last verse this morning, verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Jesus shows us in his ministry here on earth what this looks like. Toward the end of his ministry, he comes to the city of Jerusalem. And Luke tells us, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. As the psalmist says, his eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How long have I longed to, to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks? But you would not. You won't listen. You won't obey the word that God has sent to you. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And that kind of sorrow that Jesus displays and that we should have too, Thomas Manton calls that a public spirit and respect to the common good, moved with love and care for their country. When God marks people out, his people, for preservation when his judgment is about to fall, who does he mark out? This is very interesting. It's not something that I think we just kind of naturally take note of in scripture. But in Ezekiel 9, verse 4, the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Who does God mark out for preservation? Those who mourn that God's law is not being kept. The same thing is true, we saw it in the book of Revelation with those who are marked out there. Here's an illustration. Ezra chapter 9 Ezra is praying this prayer of repentance. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. So Ezra here is 
weeping and mourning for the sins of his people. And that comes before the Reformation. They weep and mourn over the sin, and then they change. Now, as we think about this in this, the verse that we have in Psalm 119, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. There's an assumption underneath this verse. And the assumption is people should keep God's law. The nations should obey God's law. So when God's people pray for the nation, asking God for repentance and reformation, they're being good citizens of their nation. Thomas Manton says this, he says, Godly men are the truest friends to their native soil. Now, God's law is good for the nations. Many of us today don't think that way in our situation in our country, we tend to think in terms of a, a neutral public square. We think that we can have some kind of neutrality and people can do this thing and that thing and we can all just get along and nobody should have to tell anybody else what to do and that's just not the biblical idea. If you were on a ship and that ship hit a rock and tore a big hole in the hull in the front of the ship, would you just go to the back of the ship and not worry about the hole? It's their problem up there in the front of the ship. It's not my problem. No, of course not. Because what happens to the ship happens to everybody on it. And we shouldn't think that way about our nation either. We should seek the good of our nation, which is to follow God's law. Calvin comments on this verse here in Psalm 119, and here's what, here's what he has to say. He says, see here that the true children of God ought not to be content only with their own walking aright, framed according to the law of God, but by all means possible, they ought to also labor to bring the whole world with them so that all creatures of God revere and glorify God's majesty in one accord. God's law is good for the nations. And so the psalmist sheds streams of tears when he sees that the people around him do not follow God's law. And that leads us directly to the principle that we want to see today. And that's that God's laws apply to all nations. We've seen this before. We'll probably continue with this theme for a couple of weeks. This is an area of great confusion for the church. And so this is kind of going to be a little bit just of a, a brief overview today. And we'll get into some other details and aspects of it in future weeks. But I want you to turn with me to Psalm 2. We've looked at this psalm before. We're going to look at it again this morning very briefly. Because I think this psalm just, it's so clear about how God views the nations and the expectation that he has for them. Psalm 2 has 12 verses, and it really easily just kind of divides up into four sections, three verses each. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read three verses at a time and give you a sentence or two to summarize what it's saying, just so that we can think through the argument of this psalm. All right, so follow along with me the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Okay. So first of all, who is the Lord's anointed? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And what we see in these verses is that the nations rebel against Christ. The people of the nations, the kings and rulers of the nations rebel against Christ. Okay, verses four to six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God laughs at their attempts to rebel against him. And God installs Christ on his throne. He has set his king in place. Now verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. Now at this point I need to just kind of make note. The voice changes here. Now this is the anointed, the king who's on the throne. So this is Christ speaking here. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the nations, not just Israel, but the nations are given to Christ. Christ is put on his throne. Father installs him on his throne and the nations are given to him. When was Jesus put on his throne? He ascended. He's seated now at the right hand of God the Father. He's ruling and reigning right now. And the nations, not just Israel, are given to him. The last three verses. Now this is the application, right? So the psalmist has he's given you the theology. He's told you what is true. And now he's going to apply this. If you are a king or a ruler of the nations and you're listening to this, what should you do? Here's the application. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the kings and rulers of the nations are called to submit to Christ and obey him. And if they do that as rulers, then they're ruling over their nation in a way that honors Christ, that obeys his law. All the nations. Now, <clears throat> that's the context. I want to give you one particular case law. And it might seem like a strange one, but there's a reason I'm giving you this one. I'm not going to talk about the law itself and why this law is given, what I want you to see is how this law is applied, specifically to whom it is applied. Okay? And here's the law. It's Leviticus 18.22. And if you go ahead and turn there, I'm going to actually read some verses later in that chapter in a few minutes. But this is the prohibition against homosexuality. This whole chapter is on godly relations, and so it's outlawing those relations that do not fit God's design. So Leviticus 18, verse 22, and it's not complicated. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
Okay, that's the sin of homosexuality. Now, for those who argue, well, we don't need the Old Testament law anymore, except maybe the Ten Commandments, what do you do with this? It's not one of the Ten Commandments. Now, it does get repeated in some forms in the New Testament, so that helps us. But what I want to do is I want to show you how this law applies in a couple different scenarios. And the first is the city of Sodom. The city of Sodom. Really, this is the one. This is the main one that this particular law applies to. And you know the story, right? Abraham and Lot, and Lot lives in Sodom, and the city is very wicked. Lot is righteous, but the city is wicked. There's all kinds of deviancy there. There's a couple of angels that come to warn Lot that it's time to leave, and the deviance is so great that they're even trying to attack the angels. Lot escapes, his daughters escape, his wife looks back, she's turned into a pillar of salt, that whole account. You were familiar with that, right? Now, what I want you to see is how Peter talks about this. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So Sodom and Gomorrah intentionally, now in God's purposes, serve as an example to the ungodly. And he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, what kind of deeds? Lawless deeds. And the question is, what law? Get your chronology in mind. When does the story of Sodom happen? It's Abraham and Lot. It's 400 years before God gives the law at Mount Sinai. So what law were the Sodomites violating? It's the same law. And the nations, cities like Sodom, were accountable to obey that law before God ever gave it in written form. Uh, think through the implications of that. That's a really important thing for us to understand. Greg Bonson comments on this. He says, hundreds of years before the constitution of Israel as a nation under the written law of God, that same law that was ultimately given at Sinai, that same law had ethical authority. If there had been no binding law, there could have been no sin and hence no justified vengeance of God against the Sodomites. We know that God is just and God says that what they were doing was lawless. It violated his law and he judged them for it. But it's hundreds of years before the Mosaic law was ever given. And the point is, before the law was ever given, the nations were still accountable to obey God's laws. Now, what happens after this? So, I mean, the law that God gives to Israel in the days of Moses reveals a standard, but that standard has always been in place. 
And it's always been binding on the nations. God's laws apply to all nations. Now, the second case I want to give you is not one that has the issue of homosexuality, but it's the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh. You know the story of Jonah. Jonah gets sent to Nineveh. He has a message that they're supposed to repent. We don't even know really in detail what the the sins of Nineveh or the Assyrians were. We know from history that they were very wicked and violent and cruel towards all kinds of people. But Jonah's message for Nineveh is that God's judgment will fall on them in 40 days. And the response of the Ninevites is, they repent. Now, for God to judge the Ninevites, they had to somehow violate his law. They did something wrong for them to repent. They had to realize that they had violated God's law. So, in the same way that Sodom was accountable to God's law, Nineveh was accountable to God's law. Before God's law was given, after God's law was given, the nations are accountable to keep God's law. It's not the case that before God gave the law to Moses, the nations were just a free-for-all. It's also not the case that when God gave the law to, to Moses and to Israel, he said, now, only Israel has to do this. No, all the nations are accountable to obey God's law. The third case I want to give you is the case of Israel. And if you're still there in Leviticus 18, here's what I want you to see. Verse 22 was our law that we looked at against homosexuality. Now, two verses later, verse 24, we read this. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. So all the, all the sins that are listed in that chapter, all the different ways of deviating from God's design, including the one we looked at in verse 22, the sin of homosexuality, okay? Uh, all the, by, by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Now, here's what we need to realize. The requirement was exactly the same, and the punishment was exactly the same for the nations and for Israel. The nations are accountable to obey God's law. By committing a sin like homosexuality, the nations became unclean, and God punished them for it. The land vomited out its inhabitants. In other words, God's expectation for the other nations is that they would obey his law. And when they don't, they're subject to the exact same punishment as Israel. So, God's laws apply to all nations. Now, what do we do with that? There's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that this has changed somehow. And what that means for us today is this. The United States of America will be held accountable for all the ways that we violate God's law. for the sin of abortion, 
for all the gender madness, for theft, for all kinds of ways, in every way that we violate God's law, we as a nation are accountable to God. It's such a foreign idea today because we've adopted worldly thinking. We think that separation of church and state means separation of God and state. Separation of morality and state. But that's the world's thinking. That's not what God says. What should we do as individual citizens? If we go back in time a ways and listen to J.C. Ryle, he has something to say to this. The man who is content to sit ignorantly by his own fireside, wrapped up in his own private affairs, and has no public eye for what is going on in the church and the world, is a miserable patriot and a poor style of Christian. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world. We need to be speaking out against it. We need to be doing what it is that God has given us to do in the place that he's put us in order to further his law. You know, the model of scripture is that the wickedness of the nation brings the Christian to sorrow. We see it in Psalm 119, 136. We see it in Ezra. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Jesus as he comes to Jerusalem. And the question this morning is, do we see it in the mirror? Do our eyes cry streams of tears because people don't obey God's law? Do we have that compassion, that expectation, but that compassion, that concern that our nation, that our state, that our community would honor God? Lord, as we listen to the words of the psalmist this morning and we see the tears that the psalmist shed because people didn't obey your law, we have to ask ourselves if we have that same expectation and that same care and concern in our world today. I pray that you would use what we've seen from your word this morning to change our hearts, that we would care, that we wouldn't think that somehow those people who aren't Christians aren't held to that standard, but we would recognize that, no, you hold everyone, all nations to this standard and that judgment is coming if we continue to flout your laws. I pray that our love and concern for our neighbors would lead us to shed streams of tears when we see your law being discarded and ignored. And I pray that we would in whatever way you have given us to do, that we would promote your truth, your word, your law in the place that you've put us. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.